This morning we're going to continue uh, our look at, at what God defines as wisdom uh, by looking at uh, the wisdom literature that's found uh, in the Old Testament. We're going to even look, spend one week uh, looking at a book that isn't really preached on a whole lot, uh, but has tremendous value. So our, our reading this morning uh, is taken from the Song of Solomon. Uh, I'm going to be reading from chapter 2, verses 1 to 14. This is God's Word. I am the rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Zion, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle. Or young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens at figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, speak to us through your word. Uh, We're thankful that your word is powerful, that your spirit uses it to shape our hearts and our lives, our mind, our will, our emotions, our behavior. So we pray uh, that as we meditate on your word, uh, that we would hear your voice here this morning. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you remember uh, what is now, I suppose, uh, the older movie, uh, Sleepless in Seattle? I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, uh, but it's uh, made 20-some-odd years ago, uh, starred uh, uh, an actress named Meg Ryan and an actor uh, named Tom Hanks. And uh, it tells this interesting love story, and, and it talks about how Meg Ryan, who is the main character of the movie, uh, hears Tom Hanks' voice on uh, the radio and instantly falls in love with him. One of the problems is he lives in Seattle, and she's living in Baltimore at the time, actually in Fells Point. A big, large part of that movie uh, was filmed in this city. And the whole movie goes on her kind of love quest of, of trying to actually meet him, and then, of course, uh, uh, at the end of the, the movie, they do indeed meet together. Uh, but there's this one scene that I've always chuckled at and has always stuck with me, and, and uh, it's a scene where Meg Ryan goes to uh, see, I think, her brother, brother uh, who uh, is working in a museum downtown in Baltimore, and she starts talking to him about these cosmic forces of love uh, that, are, that seem to be drawing her to this man that she has never met. And uh, he just kind of shakes his head and looks at her, 
And he, he basically says, you know, there's no such thing as cosmic love and all that sort of stuff. It's really just two neuroses finding connection with one another or your subconscious connecting with this person's subconscious. And he becomes this perfect foil for this lovesick character uh, played by Meg Ryan. It's this great scene. And I thought about that scene this whole week as I uh, reflected on this passage from the Song of Solomon. You'll see why in a minute. Uh, if you've been with us the past couple weeks, uh, you know we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is an interesting book that talks about uh, life under the sun or living under the sun or uh, a purely secular way of viewing the world. And we saw how uh, that view of the world at times presents its own challenges. And it reminds us that there's good reason for even those who don't believe to doubt their unbelief. And that is really the point of the book, that meaning, purpose, identity are all really hard things to find in life under the sun or in a secular worldview. If you're with us last week, we talked about justice is a a very hard concept if we think about life without any regard for God at all, because it seems as if time and chance rule the day. We wonder if anyone will ever hear the cries of the oppressed that exist in our world. So justice is is a difficult concept if you're going to live without regard to God at all. And then we get to the book of Song of Solomon and we're reminded that love is the same way. Love is a difficult concept for us to come to terms with if we live with no regard for God at all. And the question is, is love purely chemical, like that character in the movie? Is it purely chemical? Is it our brains just firing in the right way or one person's subconscious relating to another's? Or is love something that is much deeper? Is there some sort of force behind this thing that we call love? You see, what I believe is that there is a really strong apologetic to love when you think about it. Uh, often when we are, are sharing our faith uh, with other people, uh, we feel like the first thing we need to get them to do is to, to realize just how horribly sinful they are as people. Now, don't get me wrong, uh, uh, that is part of this gospel message, coming to terms with the sinfulness of our own hearts. And for some, pre- for some folks, that is something they feel very viscerally. It's something they connect with immediately. But for others, they don't always connect with that quite as quickly. And for some, maybe the existence of love can become the starting point in which we start to talk about a relationship with God. Because a love, I think we would all agree, is probably one of the most powerful of all emotions, if not the most powerful. And the question then is, where does this most powerful of emotions come from? Does it come simply from our neuroses in our brains or the firing of neurons? Or is there something deeper and something more profound going on when we experience love? Well, one of the things that the scriptures is very clear about is that love ultimately comes from God. That God, in the most purest of sense, is love himself. And you and I, as human beings, we experience that love, albeit imperfectly most of our experience, 
Uh, we experience that love because we are made in God's image. That we bear his fingerprints, we bear his likeness, so we get to participate in this experience called love. You see, God is a God of relationship. We believe that God is a relational being in his ontology, that is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit exist in perfect relationship, and in that perfect relationship is perfect love. In that godness, in that trinity, is where love originated and it is where it is most perfect. 1 John 4 reminds us of this very thing. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. But one of the most beautiful things that we read about in the scriptures is that God wasn't content to just hoard love within himself or within his own godness, but he chose to share this experience of love by creating human beings like you and I who also get to participate in this thing called love. And if you read the scriptures at all, you'll see this from the very beginning. And if you think about it, the whole Bible is really a love story from start to finish. And we know that because if you open up your Bible, you look at the first two chapters, one of the first things you see is a marriage. In Genesis chapter 2 is the first marriage. And then you fast forward all the way to the end of the Bible to to Revelation chapter 19. And what do you see? You see another wedding. A wedding is at the beginning of the Bible, and a wedding is at the end of the Bible. And what you see at this very first wedding in Genesis 2 is the beauty of the love of a husband and a wife. And God establishes that from the very beginning. Before the fall of man, he establishes the beauty of the love of a husband and wife. You see, God creates Adam and Eve, and they uniquely get to share in this powerful experience of love. And the scriptures celebrate this love as one of God's greatest gifts. In fact, God himself delights in it. And then in comes this book called The Song of Solomon that we just read from, this eight little eight-chapter book that's found in the Old Testament wisdom literature. And I have to say, as I've thought about this and read about this uh, throughout the week, I think this book of uh, the Song of Solomon is one of the most neglected books in all of the Bible. Probably because if you've ever read it before, you've kind of scratched your head and wondered what to make of this little book. And if you haven't read it before, go home and read it. I'm willing to bet what you read will surprise you from the first verse to the very end. And uh, because of that, we read it and recognize that um, uh, this book doesn't have any obvious religious content to it, right? It doesn't really refer to God a whole lot throughout the book. And it even has some pretty sexualized language and images contained within it. In fact, uh, for centuries, uh, they wouldn't let young boys read the book of Song of Solomon till they reached a certain 
certain age. That's how interesting uh, this book is. And if you read it, you'll realize that the poetry that it contains was very common in the ancient world, but it seems a bit bizarre to us as we read it today. Uh, Song of Solomon chapter 7 says this, your nose is like the tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. Now, now use that phrase the next time you go out on a date and see how well uh, that phrase works with whoever you're with. And so many people approach this book, and there's been so much disagreement over how we are supposed to interpret it. Uh, some read it and think we should interpret it uh, metaphorically um, uh, or, or allegorically. Um, uh, we can't possibly take it literal. And others read it and say, well, we have to take it literally. Uh, there's others that have looked at it and said it's a story about an affair and we shouldn't celebrate it. The Catholic Church looks at the book and says it's talking all about Mary and extolling the virtues of Mary. So the question becomes, how, how should we take this book as we look at it? And I think very plainly what this book is, is it's a love song. It's a back and forth love song between a man and a woman. And at points, of course, it comes off very lovesick. At points, it comes off gushing and using all sorts of gushing language. It will certainly make you blush at points as you read through it, especially if you're paying attention to what it is really saying. But the point of the book is this. The point is to lift up the beauty of love between a man and a woman, to see it for the true gift that it really is. Because what it demonstrates for us is it demonstrates the beauty of marital and even sexual love when it is experienced within God's design for humanity. And as I read this, the book this week, I was reminded uh, of this quote uh, that is by David Brooks that I think uh, captures the book well. It says this, Love is like an invading army that reminds you that you are not the master of your own house. It conquers you little by little, reorganizing your energy levels, reorganizing your sleep patterns, reorganizing your conversation patterns, and towards the end of the process, rearranging the objects of your desire and even the focus of your attention. When you're in love, you can't stop thinking about your beloved. You walk through the crowd and think you see her in a vaguely familiar form every few yards. You flip from highs to lows and feel pain at slights that you know are probably trivial or illusory. Love is the strongest kind of army because it generates no resistance. When the invasion is only half complete, the person being invaded longs to be defeated fearfully but utterly and hopelessly. You see, what we witness in this book, The Song of Solomon, is we witness a young couple being invaded by the army of love. It, it captures everything about them. It touches their mind, it touches their will, it touches their emotions and their behavior, and they are caught up in what is the strongest of all emotions. 
You see, what this book, I think, beautifully does is, is, it, is it demonstrates the beauty of love, not the asceticism of, of past uh, religious structures that have tried to uh, 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 celebrate the ascetic life, a life of self-denial, and nor does it go to the other extreme. It doesn't celebrate debauchery or the overly uh, sexualized picture of love that we often see in our culture today, but what it does is it celebrates, it holds up, it lifts up this true gift of love. And if you've ever really been in love, you know exactly what it feels like. You know that at times it feels magical. At times you feel lost completely in these emotions. You remember the, the infatuation stage when uh, this love was all that you could think about and you did all sorts of things that you never dreamt that you, do, you, could do, you would do because you were captured by love. You think of your wedding day when you feel so happy that you think that you might burst. You think about love after years of marriage and how it, de- it develops into this settled constancy that exists in your life. And, and you just can't imagine life without your beloved. But what's true about every stage of this is that it spurns definition. We all know what it feels like, but we often can't describe it or put it into words. And that's why, if you really think about it, more songs have been written about love than anything else they've been written about. And that is because words just fail to do it justice. And so what do we do? We have to use art to describe it instead, which is probably why there's so much poetry all throughout the scriptures. Because when we experience love, it is as if we are participating in the transcendent. We are experiencing a small taste of the perfect love that is embodied in God. And that is beyond description. It is beyond scientific category, but we know it better than anything our minds have ever learned. And so this book, The Song of Solomon, is a story of love. But really, it is contained in a greater book that is a story of love from start to finish. Like we said, the Bible starts with the wedding and it ends with the wedding. The first wedding is a story of love between a man and a woman. But the Bible ultimately is the story of the love of Christ for his bride. And that is what we see consummated in that final wedding in Revelation chapter 19. Listen to these words. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, what this gives us a picture of is this. 
It gives us a picture of the final wedding that will be at the end of all things. And what the picture tells us is that this wedding will be between God and his people, the church. And there's two really powerful images in this passage that I just read to you. The first is that the bride, the church, God's people are dressed in white. And see, white from the beginning has been a symbol of purity. And we even use that in in marriage dresses, uh, in, in weddings today. Marriage is this symbol of purity and the bride is the church. But as we read that, we wonder how could that be? Because if you hang out in church long enough, right, you know that the church is far from pure. It is far from, far from perfect. So how could the bride be dressed in white? God's people have rebelled against him. They've sinned against him. They have uh, rebelled in thought, word, and, and deed each day. How could this bride be dressed in white? And the answer is found in the groom. Because what it says about the groom is this, the groom is a lamb. Now, why is the groom a lamb? Well, the the groom is a lamb because it's Jesus himself, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And because the gospel tells us that it was his sacrifice that made his bride pure. 1 John 4 says this, In this, the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him in this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. You see, friends, in love, Jesus Christ became the Lamb, the sacrifice that was needed to make this final wedding happen. Friends, this love story is open to all of us. Whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're divorced, whether you're estranged, it doesn't matter. Whether you are sinful, whether you are hurting, whether you are broken, the love of God reaches you because the lamb was slain on your behalf. And so the invitations have been sent, the preparations have been made, and so join in the celebration and experience the love that is found in Christ, the Lamb who is also the groom. Let's pray.